Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the world of Percy Jackson. In this episode, we'll read chapters 7 and 8. In the previous episode, uh, we read chapters 5 and 6. And before we get into that, I want to deeply apologize for uploading two days late than what I usually say I will upload then. Three days late. So, I'm very sorry about that. Um, I am... I guess you could say I'm busy as of right now and I can't and sometimes I may forget to do it so I really apologize in advance for ever missing on updating weekly like I said I would. Um, I will try my best to still update weekly and get it on time so that you guys can get the experience you want and a lot of people have been asking me to upload weekly like more than one once weekly and I believe I will try doing that when I have I have more free time in my time when I have more free time I will surely start doing more than once weekly but for now I don't think I can I deeply apologize for that um yeah uh again I apologize for that uh other than that let's go into the recap so last chapter chapter six we found out that Hephaestus, people of Hephaestus, right? Uh, we're, if we were looking at Leo's perspective, chapter 6. And Leo Leo got to meet his siblings, or you could say step-siblings, since Hephaestus married multiple people and, you know, had multiple children. So he met his siblings, his step-siblings, and he learned that their that Hephaestus kids, not all Hephaestus kids, but rarely Hephaestus kids, some Hephaestus kids have fire powers. They're able to control fire. And at the end of chapter six, we find out that Leo was the cause for his mom's workshop to burn down and ultimately her mom, his mom's death, as well as he still needs to decide whether he wants to show everyone his fire powers or not. Because, you know, it's the same fire powers that he you that he accidentally used to set fire to his mom's shop and that probably traumatized him. So I'm sure that Leo has a very big decision to do because having fire powers and being one of the rarest people of Hephaestus like children of Hephaestus to have the fire power is really a big deal because you don't know if you want to hide it from everyone or if you want to you know, tell everyone so that, you know, if they ever find out, you may get in big trouble because they might get mad like, hey, why didn't you let me know before? So yeah, we'll see what Leo does. But for now, we're going to go back to Jason when we read chapter seven, Jason's perspective. So without further ado, on with the show. As soon as Jason saw the house, he knew he was a dead man. Here we are, Drew said cheerfully. The big house, camp headquarters, It didn't look threatening, just a four-story manor painted baby blue with the white trim. The wraparound porch had lounge chairs, a card table, and an empty wheelchair. Wind chimes, shaped like nymphs, turned into trees as they spun. Jason could imagine old people coming here for summer vacation, sitting on the porch and sipping prune juice while they watched the sunset. Still, the windows seemed to glare down at him like angry eyes. The wide-open doorway looked ready to swallow him. On the highest gable, a bronze eagle weather vane spun in the wind and pointed straight in his direction, as if telling him to turn around. 
Every molecule in Jason's body told him he was on enemy ground. I am not supposed to be here, he said. Drew circled her arm, her arm around through his. Oh, please, you're perfect here, sweetie. Believe me, I've seen a lot of heroes. Drew smelled like Christmas, a strange combination of pine and nutmeg. Jason wondered if she always smelled like that or if I was, it was some kind of special perfume for the holidays. Her pink eyeliner was really distracting. Every time she blinked, she felt compelled, he felt compelled to look at her. Maybe that was the point. To show off her warm brown eyes. She was pretty, no doubt about that, but she made Jason feel uncomfortable. He slipped his arm away as gently as he could. Look, I appreciate- Is it that girl? Drew pouted. Oh, please, tell me you are not dating the dumpster queen. You mean Piper? Um... Jason wasn't sure how to answer. He didn't think he'd ever seen Piper before today, but he felt strangely guilty about it. He knew he shouldn't be in this place. He shouldn't befriend these people, and certainly he shouldn't date one of them. Still, Piper had been holding his hand when he woke up on that bus. She believed she was his girlfriend. She'd been brave on the skywalk, fighting those venti. And when Jason had caught her in midair, they'd held each other face to face. He couldn't pretend he was a little tempted to kiss her. But that wasn't right. He didn't even know his own story. He couldn't play with her emotions like that. Drew rolled her eyes. Let me help you decide, sweetie. You can do better. A guy with your looks and obvious talent? She wasn't looking at him, though. She was staring at a spot right above his head. You're waiting for a sign, he guessed. Like what popped over Leo's head? What? No. Well, yes. I mean, from what I heard, you're pretty powerful, right? You're going to be an important at camp, so I figure your parent will claim you right away. And I'd love to see that. I want to be with you every step of the way. So, is your dad or mom the god? Please tell me it's not your mom. I would hate it if you were Aphrodite kid. Why? Then you'd be my half-brother, silly. You can't date somebody from your own cabin. Yuck. Burnt. Aren't all the gods related? Jason asked. So isn't everyone here your cousin or something? Aren't you cute? Sweetie, the godly side of your family doesn't count except for your parent. So anybody from another cabin, they're fair game. So who's your godly parent? Mom or dad? As usual, Jason didn't have an answer. He looked up, but no glowing sign popped above his head. At the top of the big house, the weather vane was still pointing his direction. That bronze eagle glaring as if to say, Turn around, kid, while you still can. Then he heard footsteps on the front porch. No, not footsteps. Hooves. Kyron, Drew called. This is Jason. He's totally awesome. Jason backed up so fast he almost tripped. Rounding the corner of the pro porch was a man on horseback, except he wasn't on horse. Back. He was part of the horse. From the waist up, he was human, with curly brown hair and, well, and a well-trimmed beard. He wore a t-shirt that said, World's Best Centaur, and had a quiver and bow strapped to his back. His head was up so high up, he had to duck to avoid the porch lights, because from the waist down, he was a white stallion. Chiron started to smile at Jason. Then the color drained from his face. You. The centaur's eyes flared like a cornered animal's. You should be dead. Kyron ordered Jason, well, invited, but it sounded like an order to come inside the house. He told Drew to go back to her cabin, which Drew didn't look happy about. The centaur trotted over to the empty wheelchair on the porch. He slipped off his quiver and bow and backed up to the chair, which opened like a magician's box.
Chiron gingerly stepped into it with, its, with his back legs and began scrunching himself into a space that should have been too small. Jason imagined a truck's reversing noises. Beep, beep, beep. As the centaur's lower half disappeared and the chair folded up, popping out a, a set, of, set of fake human legs covered in a blanket. So Chiron appeared to be a regular mortal guy in a wheelchair. Follow me, he ordered. We have lemonade. The living room looked like it had been swallowed by a rainforest. Grapevines curled up, cur- curved up the walls and across the ceiling, which Jason found a little strange. He didn't think plants grew like that inside, especially in the winter, but these were leafy greens and bursting with bunches of red grapes. Leather couches faced a stone fireplace with a crackling fire. Wedged in one corner, an old-style Pac-Man arcade game beeped and blinked. Mounted on the walls was an assortment of masks, smiley, frowny Greek theater types, feathered Mardi Gras masks, Venetian carnival masks with big beak-like noses, carved wooden masks from Africa. Grapevines grew through their mouths so they seemed to have leafy tongues. Some had red grapes bulging through their eye holes. But the weirdest thing was a stuffed leopard's head above the fireplace. It looked so real, its eyes seemed to follow Jason. Then it snarled, and Jason nearly leaped out of his skin. Now, Seymour, Chiron chided. Jason is a friend. Behave yourself. That thing is alive, Jason said. Chiron rummaged through the side pocket of his wheelchair and brought out his packets of sausages. He threw one to the leopard, who snapped it up and licked his lips. You must excuse the decor, Chiron said. All this was a parting gift from our old director before he was recalled to Mount Olympus. He thought it would help us to remember him. Mr. D has a strange sense of humor. Mr. D, Jason said. Dionysus? Mm-hmm. Chiron poured lemonade, through his, though his hands were trembling a little. As for Seymour, well, Mr. D liberated him from a Long Island garage sale. The leopard is Mr. D's sacred animal, you see, and Mr. D was appalled as somebody would stuff such a noble creature. He decided to grant it life on the assumption that life as a mounted head was better than no life at all. I must say it's a kinder fate than Seymour's previous owner got. Seymour bared his fangs and sniffed the air as if hunting for more snossages. If he's only a head, Jason said, where does the food go when, he's eat, when he eats? Better not to ask, Chiron said. Please sit. Jason took some lemonade, though his stomach was fluttering. Chiron sat back in his wheelchair and tried for a smile, but Jason could tell it was forced. The old man's eyes were as deep and dark as Wells. So, Jason, he said, would you mind telling me, ah, uh, where you're from? I wish I knew. Jason told him the whole story from waking up on the bus to crash landing at Camp Half-Blood. He didn't see any point in hiding the details, and Chiron was a good listener. He didn't react to the story other than to nod encouragingly for more. When Jason was done, the old man sipped his lemonade. I see, Chiron said, and you must have questions for me. Only one, Jason admitted. What did you mean when you said I should be dead? Chiron studied him with concern, as if he expected Jason to burst into flames. My boy, do you know what those marks on your arm mean? The color of your shirt, do you remember anything? Jason looked at the tattoo on his forearm. SPQR, the eagle, 12 straight lines. No, he said, nothing. Do you know where you are? Chiron said, do you understand what this place is and who I am? You're Chiron the centaur, Jason said. I'm guessing you're the same one from the old stories. 
who used to train the Greek heroes like Heracles. This is a camp for demigods, children of the Olympian gods. So you believe those gods still exist? Yes, Jason said immediately. I mean, I don't think we should worship them or sacrifice chickens to them or anything, but they're still around because they're a powerful part of civilization. They move from country to country as the center of power shifts. Like, they move from ancient Greece to Rome. I couldn't have said it better. Something about Chiron's voice had changed. So you already know the gods are real. You have already been claimed, haven't you? Maybe, Jason said. I'm not really sure. Seymour the leopard snarled. Chiron waited and Jason realized what had just happened. The centaur had switched to another language and Jason had understood automatically answering the same tongue. Kiserat. Jason faltered, then made a conscious effort to speak English. What was that? You know Latin, Chiron observed. Most demigods recognize a few phrases, of course. It's in their blood, but not as much as ancient Greek. None can speak Latin fluently without practice. Jason tried to wrap his mind around what that meant, but too many pieces were missing from his memory. He still had the feeling that he shouldn't be here. It was wrong and dangerous, but at least Chiron wasn't threatening. In fact, the centaur seemed concerned for him, afraid for his safety. The fire reflected in Chiron's eyes, making them dance fretfully. I taught your namesake, you know, the original Jason. He had a hard path. I've seen many heroes come and go. Occasionally, they have happy endings. Mostly, they don't. It breaks my heart, like losing a child each each time one of my pupils dies. But you, you are not like any pupil I've ever taught. Your presence here could be a disaster. Thanks, Jason said. You must be an inspiring teacher. I'm sorry, my boy. But it's true. I had hoped after Percy's success. Percy Jackson, you mean. Ambit's boyfriend, the one who's missing. Chiron nodded. I hoped that after he succeeded in the Titan War and saved Mount Olympus, we might have some peace. I might be able to enjoy one final triumph of happy ending and perhaps retire, retire quietly. I should have known better. The last chapter approaches just as it did before. The worst is yet to come. In the corner, the arcade game made a sad pew-pew-pew sound, like a Pac-Man had just died. Okay, Jason said. So, last chapter happened before, worst yet to come. Sounds fun, but can we go back to the part where I'm supposed to be dead? I don't like that part. I'm afraid I can't explain my boy. I swore on the river sticks and all th- and all on all things sa- sacred that I would never. Chiron frowned, but you're here, in violation of the same oath. That too should not be possible. I don't understand. Who would have such, done such a thing? Who? Seymour the leopard howled. His mouth froze half open. Half open. The arcade game stopped beeping. The fire stopped crackling. Its flames hardened like red glass. The masks stared down silently at Jason with their grotesque grape eyes and leafy tongues. Chiron? Jason asked. What's going? The old centaur had frozen too. Jason jumped off the couch, but Chiron kept staring at the same spot. His mouth opened mid-sentence. His eyes didn't blink. His chest didn't move. Jason, a voice said. For a horrible moment, he thought the leopard had spoken. Then dark mist boiled out of Seymour's mouth. And an even worse thought occurred to Jason. Storm spirits. He grabbed the golden coin from his pocket. 
With a quick flip, it changed into a sword. The mist took the form of a woman in black robes. Her face was hooded, but her eyes glowed in the darkness. Over her shoulder, she wore a goatskin cloak. Jason wasn't sure how he knew it was goatskin, but he recognized and knew it was important. Would you attack your patron? The woman shouted. Her voice echoed in Jason's head, lower your sword. Who are you? He demanded. How did you? Our time is limited, Jason. My prison go, grow, grows stronger by the hour. It took me a full month to gather enough energy to work even the smallest magic through its bonds. I've managed to bring you here, but now I have little time left and even less power. This may be the last time I can speak to you. You're in prison? Jason decided. Maybe he wouldn't lower his sword. Look, I don't know you and you're not my patron. You know me, she insisted. I have known you since your birth. I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything. No, you don't, she agreed. That also was necessary. Long ago, your father gave me your life as a gift to placate, placate my anger. He named you Jason after my favorite mortal. You belong to me. Whoa, Jason said. I don't belong to anyone. Now is the time to pay your debt, she said. Find my prison, free me, or their king will rise from the earth and I will be destroyed. You will never retrieve your memory. Is that a threat? You took my memories? You have until sunset on the solstice, Jason. Four short days. Do not fail me. The dark woman dissolved and the mist curled into a leopard's mouth. Time unfroze. Seymour's howl turned into a cough like he'd sucked in a hairball. The fire crackled to life and the arcade machine beeped. And Chiron said, would dare to bring you here. Probably the lady in the mist, Jason offered. Chiron looked up in surprise. Weren't you just sitting? Why do you have a sword drawn? I hate to tell you this, Jason said, but I think your leopard just ate a goddess. He told Chiron about the frozen in time visit, the dark misty figure that has disappeared into Seymour's mouth. Oh dear, Chiron murmured. That does explain a lot. Then why don't you explain a lot to me, Jason said. Please. Before Chiron could say anything, footsteps reverberated on the porch outside. The front door blew open and Annabeth and another girl, a redhead, burst in dragging Piper between them. Piper's head lolled like she was unconscious. What happened? Jason rushed over. What's wrong with her? Hera's, Hera's cabin. Annabeth gasped like they'd all run, they'd run all the way. Vision? Bad. The red-headed girl looked up, and Jason saw that she'd been crying. I think... The red-headed girl gulped. I think I may have killed her. And that's the end of Chapter 7. And we're back from the ads, and now we'll read Chapter 8, Jason. Jason and the redhead, who introduced herself as Rachel, put Piper on the couch while Annabeth rushed down the hall to get a med kit. Piper was still breathing, but she wouldn't wake up. She seemed to be in some kind of coma. We've got to heal her, Jason insisted. There's a way, right? Seeing her so pale, barely breathing, Jason felt a surge of protectiveness. Maybe he didn't really know her. Maybe she wasn't his girlfriend. But they survived the Grand Canyon together. They'd come all this way. He left her side for a little while, and this had happened. Chiron put his hand on her forehead and grimaced. 
Her mind is in a fragile state. Rachel, what happened? I, I wish I knew, she said. As soon as I got to camp, I had a premonition about Hera's cabin. I went inside. Annabeth and Piper came in while I was there. We talked, and then I, I just blanked out. Annabeth said I spoke in a different voice. A prophecy? Chiron asked. No. The spirit of Delphi comes from within. I know how that feels. This was like long distance, a power trying to speak through me. Annabeth ran in with a leather pouch. She knelt next to Piper. Chiron, what happened back there? I've never seen anything like it. I've heard Rachel's prophecy voice. This was different. She sounded like an older woman. She grabbed Piper's shoulders and told her to free her from her prison. Jason guessed. Annabeth stared at him. How did you know that? Chiron made a three-fingered gesture over his heart like a ward against evil. Jason, tell them. Annabeth, the medicine bag, please. Chiron trickled drops from a medicine vial into Piper's mouth while Jason explained what had happened when the room froze. The dark, misty woman who had claimed to be Jason's patron. When he was done, no one spoke, which made him more anxious. So, does this happen often? He asked. Supernatural phone calls from convicts demanding you bust them out of jail? Your patron? Annabeth said, not your godly parent? No, she said patron. She also said my dad had given her my life. Annabeth frowned. I've never heard of anything like that before. You said the storm spirit on the skywalk, he claimed to be working for some mistress who was giving him orders, right? Could it be this woman you saw messing with your mind? I don't think so, Jason said. If she were my enemy, why would she be asking for my help? She's imprisoned. She's worried about some enemy getting more powerful, something about a king rising from the earth on the solstice. Abbott turned to Chiron. Not Kronos, please tell me it's not that. The centaur looked miserable. He held Piper's wrist, checking her pulse. At last he said, It is not Kronos, that threat is ended, but... But what? Abbott asked. Chiron closed the medicine bag. Piper needs rest. We should discuss this later. Or now, Jason said. Sir, Mr. Chiron, you told me the greatest threat was coming. The last chapter. You can't possibly mean something worse than the army of titans, right? Oh, Rachel said in a small voice. Oh dear. The woman was Hera, of course. Her cabin, her voice. She showed herself to Jason at the same moment. Hera? Ambit's snarl was even fiercer than Seymour's. She took you over? She did this to Piper? I think Rachel's right, Jason said. The woman did seem like a goddess, and she wore this... This goatskin cloak. That's a symbol of Juno, isn't it? It is? Ambit scowled, reluctant, scowled. I've never heard that. Chiron nodded reluctantly. Of Juno, Hera's Roman aspect... In her most warlike state, the goatskin cloak was a symbol of the Roman soldier. So Hera is imprisoned? Rachel asked. Who could do that to the queen of the gods? Annabeth crossed her arms. Well, whoever they are, maybe we should thank them if they can shut up Hera. Annabeth, Chiron warned. She's still one of the Olympians. In many ways, she's the glue that holds the gods' families together. If she truly has been imprisoned and is in danger of destruction, this could shake the foundations of the world. It could unravel the stability of Olympus, which is never great, even in the best of times. And if Hera had, has asked Jason for help, fine, 
Annabeth grumbled. Well, we know Titans can capture a god, right? Atlas captured Artemis a few years ago, and in the old stories, the gods captured each other in traps all the time. But something worse than a Titan? Jason looked at the leopard's head. Seymour was smacking his lips like the goddess had tasted much better than a snossage. Hera said she'd been trying to break through her prison bonds for a month, which is how long Olympus has been closed. Ambit said, so the gods must know something bad is going on. But why use her energy to send me here? Jason asked. She wiped my memory, plopped me to the wilderness school field trip, and sent you a dream vision to come pick me up. Why am I so important? Why not just send up an emergency flare to the other gods, let them know where she is so they bust her out? The gods need heroes to do their will down here on Earth, Rachel said. That's right, isn't it? Their fates are always intertwined with demigods. That's true, Abbott said. But Jason's got a point. Why him? Why take his memory? And Piper's involved somehow, Rachel said. Harris sent her the same message. Free me. And Annabeth, this must have something to do with Percy's disappearing. Annabeth fixed her eyes on Chiron. Why are you so quiet, Chiron? What is it that we're facing? The old centaur's face looked like it had aged ten years in a matter of minutes. The lines around his eyes were deeply etched. My dear, in this, I cannot help you. I am so sorry. Ambit blinked. You've never, you've never kept information from me. Even the last great prophecy. I will be in my office. His voice was heavy. I need some time to think before dinner. Rachel, will you watch the girl? Call Argus to bring her to the infirmary, if you'd like. And Annabeth, you should speak with Jason. Tell him about, about the Greek and Roman gods. But... The centaur turned his wheelchair and rolled off down the hallway. Abbott's eyes turned stormy. She muttered something in Greek and Jason got the feeling it wasn't complimentary towards centaurs. I'm sorry, Jason said. I think my being here, I, I don't know. I've messed things up coming to the camp somehow. Chiron said he'd sworn an oath and couldn't talk about it. What oath? Abbott demanded. I've never seen him act this way and why would he tell me to talk to you about the gods? Her voice trailed off. Apparently, she just noticed Jason's sword sitting on the coffee table. She touched the blade gingerly like it might be hot. Is this gold? She said, do you remember where you got it? No, Jason said. Like I said, I don't remember anything. Ambed nodded like she'd just come up with a rather desperate plan. If Chiron won't help, we'll need to figure things on our, out ourselves. Which means, cabin 15, Rachel, you'll keep an eye on Piper? Sure, Rachel promised. Good luck, you two. Hold on, Jason said. What's in cabin 15? Abbott stood. Maybe a way to get your memory back. They headed toward a newer wing of cabins in the southwest corner of the green. Some were fancy, with glowing walls or blazing torches, but cabin 15 was not so dramatic. It looked like an old-fashioned prairie house with mud walls and rush roof. On the door hung a wreath of crimson, crimson flowers, red poppies, Jason thought, though he wasn't sure how he knew. You think this is my parents' cabin? He asked. No, Ambit said. This is the cabin for Hypnos, the god of sleep. Then why? You've, got, you've forgotten everything, she said. If there's any god who can help us figure out memory loss, it's Hypnos. Inside, even though it was almost dinner time, three kids were sound asleep under, a pi under piles of covers. 
A warm fire crackled in the hearth. Above the mantle hung a tree branch, each twig dripping white liquid into a collection of tin bowls. Jason was tempted to catch a drop on his finger just to see what it was, but he held himself back. Soft violin music played from somewhere. The air smelled like fresh laundry. The cabin was so cozy and peaceful that Jason's eyelids started to feel heavy. A nap sounded like a great idea. He was exhausted. There were plenty of empty beds, all with feather pillows and fresh sheets and fluffy quilts, and Abbott nudged him. Snap out of it. Jason blinked. He realized his knees had been starting to buckle. Cabin 15 does that to everyone, Abbott warned. If you ask me, this place is even more dangerous than the Ares cabin. At least with Ares, you can learn where the landmines are. Landmines? She walked up to the nearest snoring kid and shook his shoulder. Clovis, wake up! The kid looked like a baby cow. He had a blonde tuft of hair on a wedge-shaped head, with thick features and a thick neck. His body was so stocky, was stocky, but he had spindly, spindly little arms like he never lifted anything heavier than a pillow. Clovis! Ambit shook harder, then finally knocked on his forehead about six times. <sighs> what? Clovis complained. Sitting up and squinting, he yawned hugely. Both Annabeth and Jason yawned too. Stop that, Annabeth said. We need your help. I was sleeping. You're always sleeping. Good night. Before he could pass out, Annabeth yanked his pillow off the bed. That's not fair, Clovis complained meekly. Give it back. First help, Annabeth said, then sleep. Clovis sighed. His breath smelled like warm milk. Fine, what? Abbott explained about Jason's problem. Every once in a while, she'd snap her fingers until under Clovis's nose to keep him awake. Clovis must have been really excited because when Annabeth was done, he didn't pass out. He actually stood and stretched, then blinked at Jason. So you don't remember anything, huh? Just impressions, Jason said. Feelings like, yes, Clovis said. Like, I know I shouldn't be here. At this camp, I'm in danger. Hmm. Close your eyes. Jason glanced at Annabeth, but she nodded reassuringly. Jason was afraid he'd end up snoring in one of the bunks forever, but he closed his eyes. His thoughts became murky, as if he were sinking into a dark lake. The next thing he knew, his eyes snapped open. He was sitting in a chair by the fire. Clovis and Annabeth knelt next to him. Serious, all right, Clovis was saying. What happened? Jason said, how long? Just a few minutes, Abbott said, but it was tense. You almost dissolved. Jason hoped she didn't mean literally, but her expression was solemn. Usually, Clovis said, memories are lost for a good reason. They sink under the surface, surface like dreams, and with a good sleep, I can bring them back, but this... Leaves? Abbott asked. No, Clovis asked. Not even leaves. Leaves? Jason asked. Clovis pointed to the tree branch dripping milky drops above the fireplace. The river leaf in the underworld. It dissolves your memories, wipes your mind clean permanently. That's the branch of a poplar tree from the underworld, dipped into the leaf. It's the symbol of my father, Hypnos. Leith is not a place you want to go swimming. Ambeth nodded. Percy went there once. He told me it was powerful enough to wipe the mind of a titan. Jason was suddenly glad he hadn't touched the branch. But that's not my problem. No, Clovis agreed. Your mind wasn't wiped, and your memories weren't buried. They've been stolen. The fire crackled. Drops of leaf water plinked into the tin cups on the mantel. One of the other hypnos campers muttered in his sleep something about a duck.
Stolen? Jason said, how? A god, Clovis said. Only a god would have that kind of power. We know that, said Jason. It was Juno, but how did she do it and why? Clovis scratched his neck. Juno? He means Hera, Ambit said. For some reason, Jason likes the Roman names. Hmm. Clovis said, what? Jason said, asked, does that mean something? Hmm. Clovis said again, and this time, Jason realized he was snoring. Clovis! He yelled. What? What? His eyes fluttered open. We were talking about pillows, right? No, gods, I remember. Greek and Roman, sure. Could be important. But they're the same gods, Ambit said, just different names. Not exactly, Clovis said. Jason sat forward, not now very much awake. What do you mean, not exactly? Well, Clovis yawned. Oh. Some gods are only Roman, like Janus or Pompona. But even the major Greek gods, it's not just their names that changed when they moved to Rome. Their appearances changed. Their attributes changed. They even had slightly different personalities. But, Ambit faltered. Okay, so maybe people saw them differently through the centuries. That doesn't change who they are. Sure it does. And Clovis began to nod off, and Jason snapped his fingers under his nose. Coming, mother! He yelped. I mean, yeah, I'm awake. So, um, personalities. The gods change to reflect their host cultures. You know that. Ambeth, I mean, these days Zeus likes tailored suits, reality television, and that Chinese food place on East 28th Street, right? It was the same in Roman times, and the gods were Roman almost as long as they were Greek. It was a big am- empire, lasted for centuries, so, of course, the Roman aspects are still a big part of their character. Makes sense, Jason said. Ambit shook her head, mystified. But how do you know all of this, Clovis? Oh, I spend a lot of time dreaming. I see the gods there all the time, always shifting forms. Dreams are fluid, you know. You can be in different places at once, always changing identities. It's a lot like being a god, actually. Like, recently, I dreamed I was watching a Michael Jackson concert, and then I was on stage with Michael Jackson, and we were singing this duet, and I could not remember the words for The Girl Is Mine. Oh, man, it was so embarrassing. I... Clovis? Ambit interrupted. Back to Rome? Right, Rome, Clovis said. So we call the gods by their Greek names because that's their original form. But saying the Roman aspects are exactly the same. That's not true. In Rome, they became more warlike. They didn't mingle with mortals as much. They were harsher, more powerful. The gods of an empire. Like the dark side of the gods? Ambit asked. Not exactly, Clovis said. They stood for discipline, honor, strength. Good things then, Jason said. For some reason, he felt the need to speak up for the Roman gods, though wasn't sure why it mattered to him. I mean, discipline is important, right? That's what made Rome last so long. Clovis gave him a curious look. That's true, but the Roman gods weren't very friendly. For instance, my dad, Hypnos, he didn't do much except sleep in Greek times. In Roman times, they call him Somnus. He liked killing people who didn't stay alert at their jobs. If they nodded off at the wrong time, boom, they never woke up. He he killed the helmsmen of Anus when they were sailing from Troy. Nice guy, Ambit said, but I still don't understand what it has to do with Jason. Neither do I. Clovis said, but if Hera took your memory, only she can give it back. And if I had to meet the queen of the gods, I'd hope she was more in a Hera mood than a Juno mood. Can I go back to sleep now? Abbott stared at the branch above the fire, dripping leaf water into the cups. 
She looked so worried, Jason wondered if she was considering to drink to forget her troubles. Then she stood and tossed Clovis his pillow. Thanks, Clovis. We'll see you at dinner. Can I get room service? Clovis yawned and stumbled to his bunk. <sighs> I feel like... <sighs> he collapsed with his butt in the air and his face buried in pillow. Won't he suffocate? Jason asked. He'll be fine. Amber said, but I'm beginning to think that you are in serious trouble. And that's the end of chapter 8. So, apparently, something new to learn. There's actually a difference between the Roman gods and the Greek gods. They apparently act differently when they're Roman. They're more disciplined and they are more, I guess you could say, they value punctuality. So, yeah, that's really like Clovis, what he talked about his dad. His dad, apparently, in Greek times, like, you know, he sleeps, but in the Roman times, he he basically exploded people who didn't, who weren't being productive. That's pretty scary. So, yeah. I guess we'll have to see how it's connected to Jason, though. Because him knowing and him, like, I don't know, him being, like, proud for the Roman gods, it may be, like, a connection. Maybe... Maybe he's not from, like, maybe he's not of Greek origin. Maybe he's from, like, the Roman origin. Not entirely sure, but we'll see when we read next time, uh, chapters 9 and 10. We actually will start on Piper's point of view in chapters 9 and 10. Or not point of view, but her um, side. So, before I end the podcast, I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 9, Piper, and then I will end the podcast. Chapter 9. Piper. Piper dreamed about her last day with her dad. They were on the beach near Big Sur, taking a break from surfing. The morning had been so perfect, Piper knew something had to go wrong soon. A rabid horde of paparazzi, or maybe a great white shark attack. No way her luck could hold. But so far, they'd had excellent waves, an overcast sky, and a mile of oceanfront completely to themselves. Dad had found this out-of-the-way spot, rented a beachfront villa and the properties on either side and somehow managed to keep it secret. If he stayed there too long, Piper knew the photographers would find him. They always did. <sighs> nice job I, nice job out there, Pipes. He gave her the smile he was famous for. Perfect teeth, dimpled chin, a twinkle in his dark eyes that always made grown women scream and ask him to sign their bodies in permanent marker. Seriously, Piper thought, get a life. His clothes crops, black hair gleamed with salt water. You're getting better at hanging 10. So, yeah, that's all I'm going to read for now. Next next time, we will read the full chapter of chapters 9 and 10. Um, I hope my pronunciations were good enough this episode. And I, again, I want to apologize for uploading really late. Um, I guess I, I was a little busy, so I wasn't able to upload that much. But, yeah, I will try to upload weekly. And I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, stay safe and stay out of boredom.